People oh, know and man. respect you, Nathan. I wasn't sure how to tell you. The Death Cowboy. Caballero Murto. War Cobra. These are good names. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. What are we talking about on the Design Games Podcast this week, Will? Nathan, let's talk about the design and play possibilities that come from the affordances of playing cards. Nathan, what do you got there? I got me a deck of luchador-themed playing cards. You would think that I got these for myself, but they were in fact a gift. <laughs> there are apparently two factions in this deck. So black is lead of legends and red is syndicate of valor. Which actually brings me to one of the things that I very much like about cards is that there are so many dimensions mm-hmm. along which you can slice the signifiers that you're pulling out of them. They're really great networks or sort of uh, intersections of information, right? Depending right. on how you want to cut them. And there's all the traditional ways of doing it. And there's lots of ways to be clever, like just, just using the red and black for two different factions. It's really great. Each card is a packet of information, right? And you right. can decide how much information not only makes it onto the card, but how much matters when. And the dimension of when things matter is kind of a product of the other systems in your game, right? Or it can be. Like that's what can take advantage of them. Yeah, yeah. The, the same way that the same, the core, like even like a core poker deck, right, of cards can contain information that is not necessary for a particular game. For example, in Mm -hmm. poker, the fact that the suits are red and black is essentially meaningless. What's important is that there are four suits, Mm -hmm. right? But there isn't a point where very often there are a couple of, you know, there are home games and table games and stuff, but where you say, ah, it's a black card, not a red card. Well, it's not like a flush is all black cards or all red cards, right? Right. That would be a different uh, different scoring if if red and black mattered in addition to the suited suitedness. Right. So you could make them not even, you could make each suit a different color in poker by and large. And it would still have the same job. But the fact that that information is there, red and black in theme, mm-hmm. somehow becomes not distracting, even though it's essentially extraneous information for certain games. You can use the same deck of cards. I, I think, for example, I have uh, a deck of cards here, the Artisans from Theory 11, that are very, very ro- you know robustly designed. They're very ornate. I love these. They're illusionist decks primarily, and I love these kind of cards. And the card backs are full of information that we just ignore. That card back, we just need to know which is the back. That contains one pixel of information, one digit of information, right. the back. right. But it can be loaded with subtext and meaning and atmosphere and stuff, as opposed to the die, which generally gives you one piece of information that you then that the player has to carry and interpret in multiple ways. So you like you say, okay, well this time when I roll the d6, it's to hit, and the next time when I roll it, it's damage, and when I, the last one I roll it, it's for hit location or something. Right? You're just being given a number, right? But you are doing a lot of work to to transform and, and adapt that number to your situation. Mm-hmm. The cards are carriers of information in a way that dice aren't a lot of the time. Until you start reading dice like cards, which I think we might have talked about a little bit. But if you say use red dice and black dice or any other two colors, that kind of thing. Yeah, or even size. I mean, not yeah. die size in terms of faces, but in terms of use the big D6 to do this and the small mm-hmm. D6s to do that. Yeah. Or even D8s are what you roll for physical things and D4s are what you roll for mental things. Right. Similar to diamonds are what you use for mental things and clubs are what you use for physical things or right. something like that. Right. There are lots of ways to to assign and sort of, if you will, pre-divine information into, Mm -hmm. infuse information into dice and then extract it out at the other end to say, I'm going to say that uh, the D8 represents this. And so then the two pieces of information you have when you're rolling it are the number and the kind of die it was. Mm -hmm. uh, There are great aspects where things like evens and odds are actually an aspect on dice and uh, or a dimension on dice. You've got the average number, which is sort of a phantom number. It's It's, usually got a 0.5 on the end of it, so it never actually rolls. It's not represented on the object. Right. Yeah. 
But what the cards do in in this regard is that they're full of affordances in a way that dice aren't, mm-hmm. um, where the object itself is giving you front, back, color, value, suitedness in a way that you don't have to interpret or read into. You still have to interpret what that means in the context of the game. Right. But you don't need to know anything about the game to draw a card and be like, this is an ace of hearts. Like, I'm looking at the front of the ace of hearts and, you know, all that information is already contained in what's in front of me. And then I go to what that means for resolution or whatever your randomness or whatever you're drawing the card for. And this relates again to sort of the the cognitive weight, as we've talked about before, of cards versus dice, which is that the card, like as you say, as a carrier, as a transmitter of that information, holds more information, not just convey, because dice can convey tons, but a lot of it is I have to remember what a D8 stands for. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I may still have to remember what a diamond stands for. The diamond becomes a mnemonic as opposed to actually a signifier. Right. Or it becomes a signifier and a mnemonic. But the card is full of reminders. So that I feel like the cognitive load on me as a player is often, not necessarily, if not less, it is different. Mm-hmm. It is sleeker or it is less friction. And again, there are lots of exceptions in both directions. But by being that packet of information, it also creates intersections that raise great questions both during game design and during play. Which mm-hmm. is to say, you know, so I, I got an eight, but what kind of eight? Oh, it's a black eight. Okay, what kind of black eight? Oh, it's a it's a spade. Mm-hmm okay, does this black eight of spades, which deck did it come out of or whatever, right? And right. so uh, uh, there are all these intersections of mm-hmm. info. And then especially if you start making your own cards yeah, or drawing on the decks or tearing decks up or whatever. I find that often one thing that keeps me away from using cards more is that they give me so many potential pieces of information that I don't need them all for something I'm doing. Mm. You mean especially uh, like even just like a regular poker deck? Yeah, even yeah. yeah. I think for for the sake of of this conversation, by and large, yeah, cards. We're just talking about a regular poker deck. Yeah, when I say deck, I agree. I, I mean poker deck. When I say tarot deck, I mean tarot deck. Uh, but yeah, so for standard poker deck, if I only need to know red or black, then I feel like using cards is too much. Mm. Right? Like there's too much information. If if what I'm really looking for is a coin flip, then maybe I'll just use coins. Or if what I'm really looking for is a way to see if one thing is one color and the other thing is the other color. Like if I have three reds and you have two blacks, that mm-hmm. has some kind of meaning. Maybe those are just dice or those are tokens, just in, tokens a bag. in a bag. Yeah. So I have a lot of games where I've looked at using a deck of poker cards and then decided to do something else because I was overwhelmed with the amount of potential information in a way that ignore two-thirds of what this card is telling you because only this part of it is what matters for this game. Interesting, yeah. I'm totally indifferent to that in my own designs because to me I just see it as as fields that have not been turned yet. I'm like, well, I can always expand the game if I want to well, with suits or something. Right, I think if there's not opportunities, like cards give you lots of opportunities, which is one thing that's great about them. But yeah, if I don't have a plan for taking advantage of those opportunities, then it's like, mm, this this is not the right system for what I'm thinking about. To me, the, the question as to whether or not to go to cards goes primarily into these two factors. One is, do I want values to be exhaustible slash guaranteed uh and i'll explain that in just one second and the other one is how much how much hidden information do i need because dice don't have a back but cards do and if i don't need either one of those then i don't need decks i don't Mm -hmm. need cards and the amount of information in the poker deck is for some reason to me because i find it very easy to just say whatever just look at the number for this just look at the color for this there are a couple of games i'm trying to think of that uh well drama system and primetime adventures that use Mm -hmm. cards without using kind of every part of the card all the time yeah and I think do so very healthily. Mm-hmm. Primetime Adventures for me is kind of the line at which I'm like, okay, like the cards work here 
if I want to do less with cards than what Primetime Adventures gets out of them, then I'm probably going to not use cards. Because right. like with that, it, red and black matters, but also the uh, numbers matter for tie-breaking because high card matters. Because mm-hmm. that's the thing is they're kind of truly randomized in the sense that you reshuffle um, every time. Which is why, to me, Primetime Adventures is also on the line because it's one of the things it's not doing, not using the cards for, is exhaustibility. Right. Which is to say that it because be you a, shuffle every time, mm-hmm. they are essentially randomized. Right. You can and people have replicated that mechanic with dice. It's fairly easy. The big aspect, I think, to the cards for me with Primetime Adventures is that it also puts a random table onto the deck, mm-hmm. which is to say all those ideas that are printed on the specific, the actual Primetime Adventures deck. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, See, that's taking advantage of, of the opportunity of the cards yeah. to give you an additional dimension for the game Yeah. that if you're using a standard deck, you know, I think, I don't remember if there's a table that maps them in the book or if they're just in that extra deck, but uh, one could use the cards for more things Right. in addition to the core use that they are and also like functionally at the table it's very smooth and easy you you know people draw cards and then you have that experience of different people laying down cards at the same time because they're on the same side yeah. of the conflict and that's all like a, a very smooth frictionless dynamic it interfaces with the play space really nicely right in right my opinion, yeah. uh, which is nice so like there's a halo effect of what using cards means at the table that is different from how like picking a bunch of dice out of a bowl or everyone taking dice out of their bag and rolling them and then saying like, oh, I got this many. Like that's a different play dynamic. The the producer dealing out cards and people picking it up and looking at it and putting down their cards, that kind of thing. When I'm teaching games with cards, one of the things that I always bring up, especially um, so a game like Dark where everybody gets their own deck. Um, as opposed to a game like Castle Falkenstein, where everybody's sharing a deck, which reduces the individual interface with the deck because it's not like I know that I'm eventually going to get my 10 of clubs because you might get the 10 of clubs. But if we each have our own deck, then it becomes like a die that can't not eventually roll the highest number on it. Mm -hmm. Because I'll say, picture a 20-sided die. There is a 20 somewhere on that die. In a deck of cards in which I know that the highest card, let's say in this case, the King of Hearts is in there. It's in there. It's going to come out sooner or later. I will eventually roll my critical hit or my great result mm-hmm. out of that deck. Right. Now, some things come married with that. If it is a truly randomizer and I'm just turning cards over off the top of the deck, for some reason I find that, and I find that players in my experience find this much less satisfying than rolling a die. Mm-hmm. Because there's something about the randomization about that that you're like, well, if I'd known that was what was next, I would have done something differently. Mm-hmm. And that you can kind of feel that at the die, but a die feels volatile. It feels surprising. Mm-hmm. Whereas a deck you know is always stacked in a way, right. which is why hands are important. Mm-hmm. So that you have two or three cards or five cards, whatever it is that you can pick from and play one. Well, now though you're looking into the future often. By holding this hand, I have five die rolls in my hand. I love, for example, yeah. the Fifth Age system with the saga system for uh, Dragonlance Fifth Age and Marvel superheroes, which is the, w- one of the first big card-driven RPGs that I really fell in love with. And I had issues with some of their implementations, but they were so, I mean, in each game, each game does things a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all, they were also so inspiring to me. They really draw an attention to notions of player agency. I had a player who wouldn't play or GM those games because he said, I don't want my players having that kind of influence over the plot. Hmm. And I'm like, first of all, they already do. And they're playing in your, they're playing in a game. They influence the plot. I don't, hmm. I'm not sure what you think these cards do. But it turned out that what essentially, when we talked it out, that part of his issue was he didn't like the idea that they would choose when to succeed and when to fail. Right, he wanted right. the volatility. Mm-hmm. And that's fair. I mean, as a thing that prefer this over that. But that notion of saying, I've got cards in the suit of swords or in the suit of moons or in the suit of hearts or whatever, and I know that I can, that I'm going to be good in this particular action. Right. I like the confidence and the 
agency that it gives the player. It gives the mm. player the ability to, in some ways, divine the mood of their character. They're like, well, I'm itching for a fight because look at all these swords I got. Cards do this thing when you're using them in that manner where you have a hand or you have a deck that isn't reshuffled mm-hmm. to capture the time dimension in a way that dice don't, yeah. right? In in their standard roll and get a number form, you could do something similar, I suppose, by rolling dice and then keeping them, right, at a value and then choosing when to apply that value. Right. That does a similar thing where it, it shifts the decision making from should I find out about this right now to right. should I accomplish or should I choose not to accomplish this thing right now and so it brings time into the decision making in a way that I think can be really empowering when you are playing a game where it's important that the player captures a sense of what their character is really about or what they really can do or really wants to have that positive effect on the game space cards can be a really strong way to do that because it is up to the player and they start having a risk reward decision making of mm-hmm. is it worth using my big gun now versus saving it for some unknown destination and the rest of your game can can hook into that decision making apparatus it can telegraph when things are going to happen to make that decision easier or it can obfuscate them to make that decision harder if you want a, a, a more uh, the, the word that comes to my mind is almost isometric top down sure kind of not, not exactly but you know what I mean kind of to remove like you have the ability to zoom out of your character's brain it's a more tactical a more tactical view yeah and then zoom back into your character's brain. Yeah, yeah yeah but that sense of i'm giving this up because i think it's important to do the thing i know it can do versus mm-hmm. i'm going to go ahead and burn these cards that are not very effective on this thing that doesn't matter to me as much because it doesn't matter to me as much right hopefully i'll get some good stuff that i can use later when stuff really does matter i think that can be very powerful in engaging the part of play that's about like I have this vision for this character, and now I get to see that vision carried out. Right. In a way that pure randomness doesn't always support. What you say about when you roll the dice and keeping them, I've done that in, in games even as non-traditionally aligned to that idea as D&D. I, I wrote a, I, years ago a post about what happens if you roll at the beginning of your turn in D&D. Mm, right. You just roll a t20 and you know, okay, well, this turn, I know I have a four. Mm. I rolled a four. So if I use my best stat, I can do something average. If I do what we've been doing, which is, let's say, a a middling stat for me, I'm going to fail. Now, that's true. I can't change the die. But I can say, okay, so knowing that I'm going to have an off turn, I as my player to make a decision to make my character look competent without necessarily succeeding, rather than than use my big glorious power or do something that's going to make it look like the only way to interpret this is that I give a rousing speech and it is feckless, that it just doesn't land. I will lean into it and play mm-hmm. what a failure looks like for my character. Right. Since like I know it's going to happen. Since I know it's going to happen. Yeah. I'm, the, the die roll is still binding. There mm-hmm. is a surprise, but it is time shifted, as you say. It's at the beginning of the turn rather than being, I do a great mm-hmm. speech, I roll a two, and I say, and everybody goes, ha ha, apparently your character sticks his foot in his mouth or falls down or is drooling yeah. the whole time. I'm like, I hate that moment. Yeah, the whole, the the joke in my high school game, right, was, oh, you you rolled a one on your spot check, your eyes explode. Oh my right. God, but right, yeah. Like yeah. that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, you you apparently just go blind for a minute because you did so poorly at this thing that's just looking out into the darkness, like that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. And that, that raises a question, and we've talked about this before with dice, but it's true with the cards, of course, as well, which is what are they actually representing? Right. And one of the things that I think that makes cards interesting 
when they get abstract is that they always have a cost unless you put the card down and then put it back in your hand, which is also not impossible. There are mm-hmm. all kinds of ways to use, obviously, this, this stuff. But the, the default notion, I play a card. There's an implicit historical cultural routine, which is I play a card and it goes into the discard pile or it sits on the table in front of me. But it almost never then just goes back into my hand and I can just do it an infinite number of times because right. that kind of goes against what we think of as cards as discrete packets of information. Uh, that means that there is a cost built in to every action right. that uses a card and that is its own it, the action itself. It is the card itself. That I'm using my eight of clubs and away it goes. Mm-hmm. And as you say, that's part of that risk-reward cost-benefit analysis that the player makes is that notion of I'm, mm. now is the time. And that's, I think w- you which see... Which a die doesn't quite do. Right. I think you see lo- see lots of that in a lot of card-based games where a, a special power or a special bonus ability is the ability to take a card back into your hand or the ability right. to play a card without discarding it or the ability to take a card out of a discard, discard pile, pile yeah. put it back in your hand. Those are all... And rightfully so, like kind of a special niche ability that gives one person the ability to do that, but not the others, because theoretically there's other abilities that other people can can do. And all of those usually are some variety of subverting the basic affordance of the card. Hmm. That's interesting. I I think you're right. Mm. But I realize... Like this card counts for spades and clubs. Right. Yeah, the wild abilities and stuff. Spades, right? That's subverting the affordance of it has a a suit printed on it and that's the suit it is. Right. Right, that kind of thing. It's interesting. It's just that that use of the word subvert because you're not wrong, Mm -hmm. but I approach it in design almost exactly from the opposite direction and arrive in the same place, which is that for me, it is fulfilling and honoring the limitation of the card and Mm -hmm. then honoring and fulfilling the power of the power of the benefit or the advantage or whatever it is that breaks right. that barrier. I mean, you're right. It is essentially the same effect of subverting it, which is it says, so this card is a spade, yeah. but for you, it's also a club. What I love about that information is the way that it takes the inherent limitations, the inherent mm-hmm. you know, creative restraints of the card, and then every creative restraint, you just loosen it a little bit and you have a power. Right. Every every restraint can be reversed, basically. Yeah. And then that gives you a obvious advantage in that arena, which is very cool. There's an acceptance that we have of the limitations of cards, which can be beneficial both in design and in play. And in design, I mean that if I have, the, whether I'm including the jokers or not, but 50 odd cards and I'm uh, using all the royals, I'm using all the suits and I say, OK, so I know I have this many outcomes. I have a finite number of outcomes, essentially a finite number of cards in the game. What is the spade version of this jack power I've just invented? And whether or not I'm actually beholden to the fact that the card has to be a perfect spreadsheet, mm-hmm. it's sparking ideas and helps me hone in on, OK, so now I can think, yeah, what is a dime? Diamond version of that same of this power that I just invented for the for the fisticuffs of the clubs for the for the mm-hmm. bruiser. What is the kind of diamond version of that? What, how how can I get a similar result for a player who chooses to approach it in a different manner? Mm-hmm. Um, and that inspirational aspect can be great, and that conveys into play in the notion of being able to sometimes intuit what a card does just from the data that's on it, but also that ability to say when I spend or when I play this card it becomes easy to visualize the course of decisions that are going on, which is to say this card allows me to play this card mm-hmm. or I have three jacks. So their, their, their similarities have this benefit to me as a player or this card lets me pull a card from the discard pile, but it dramatizes the choice in a way the dice mechanics can do, but the cards have a lot of this sort of inherent understanding because we, we encounter them in board games and in card games mm-hmm. and in RPGs that they have a kind of nimbleness, a kind of flexibility. As you say, I mean, that, that's because of their many and intersecting affordances. So this card in my head, right now, this card that I have that lets me take a card from the discard pile, it represents the card I'm going to take out. I know what card I'm going to get. I'm going to mm-hmm. get out my ace of spades and I'm going to kill kill a monster with it. But the next time it comes up, I might go, okay, well, this time this card represents my ace of diamonds because 
because that's the card I want to get with this card. Mm -hmm. But really what it is, is it's a decision point. It's a great mm -hmm. branching point for the player. There's a lot of information kind of sublimely and secretly being conveyed to a player mm -hmm. So that powers, well, in my experience, require fewer words. Mm -hmm. Well, and also the fact that they're parceled out in the little card-shaped bundles, right? right like right. that the information is broken up amongst all these pieces and you only need to look at two or three or four of them right. at once means that I think players in general have a lot easier time parsing those decisions as opposed to here's a spreadsheet of all the things that you can do. Right. Now reference with what you have, you know, on this sheet and find the thing and then decide what to do. It's kind of like you eliminate a lot of that lookup thing. You eliminate a lot yeah. of that extraneous information. There's still a lot of information. There's still a lot of intersections of abilities and stuff yeah. like that. But when you are using the cards well, I think what you're doing is you're condensing all of those potentials down to like now make this one decision. Right. Now make another single decision. Now make this next decision. Right. And you can kind of, even if you're deciding what order to make those decisions, that's much more manageable as you're just moving the cards around in your hand and deciding. Right. Exactly. So that's this, a really strong uh, affordance of the cards as well. An example of that to me that was approaching the same idea but didn't pull it off is high-level D&D 4 characters have a ton of powers and printing them in card-shaped packages. I, I had a warlord who had like a six-page character sheet and the cards, the powers were in little card-sized things on my character sheet. And it was helpful to a point, but because some of them could be used multiple times and all this other stuff. I, they weren't a deck in my hand. And if they were, I would have had a hand of 14 or 15 cards. It's too much for the card dynamic. And the card is still helping because it encapsulates, I can tell by the color of the power and this, you know, just how much text is packed into that space, how complicated it is. Um, but what it wasn't doing is that affordance of the chaining decisions and limiting my options fruitfully because I had too many options at any given mm -hmm. time. I think it was a strength of D&D 4 in that that's very aggressively what that game was doing was it was giving you more and more options over time and you picked your options that you would have for the next couple of levels. And it wasn't a fault with cards, but it was kind of an ability, a, a point where actual cards and those abilities sort of didn't actually align. It wasn't actually mm -hmm. making the best use of its affordances, which is fine because yeah. it wasn't designed to require cards. Cards were kind of an optional idea. Right. It's kind of a, as a reference, you know, yeah. that, that format is a little easier to reference and move around and arrange like, oh, I'm, I've used these powers, so I'm just going to put them, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to stack them in a little discard because I can't use them until the next encounter or whatever. There's a usability factor that they do add. Yeah. But they are shoring up an issue with a different part of the design space. Mm. They weren't designed to be the main vector of the information. They were using some of the aspects of cards, but they weren't actually, because they were neither card dependent nor card maximized, it was kind of a weird little mm. middling interface. I really like what you were saying about cards as inspiring design decisions. I'm using these cards and I've done all this stuff. What are the other opportunities that I have? Mm -hmm. Because I've assigned things to all the face cards, but now what do I do with the rest of the cards? Like that kind of thing. And that's great. But it's kind of funny because I find that the way that cards inspire me are kind of on the opposite vector, mm. which is the idea of using cards as an oracle, basically. Oh, yeah. And using them in play to develop the game as it goes, as opposed to coding them with, you know, the specifics of what they do in play. So I just want to talk for a minute about that idea where you attach elements to the cards that are meant to intersect and develop in play without being predetermined in the way of like this jack of clubs lets me have this game effect. Right. And the context is just 
is the context right for me to use as effect or not? Right. Versus jacks mean this and clubs mean this. So if I have a jack of clubs, what is that going to mean in the game now? Right. right. Which is kind of the direction that I tend to go with cards because that's the, the style of game where I find the most effective for me. I very often do that too. For me, one of the reasons that, that I struck off in the directions that I did with the last couple of things that used cards in-house and out-of-house for me was because your Falkensteins and your oracular games existed and I wanted to make a thing mm -hmm. that I couldn't get by better designers. Yeah, I mean, but, this is No, no, but right. But, the, yeah. but that, that notion essentially is, is kind of time-shifting again. If you think about it, it's time-shifting it from the designer's spreadsheet to the players at the table. Mm -hmm. Because instead of saying, what does jack plus club mean equals what? It asks jack plus club plus situation equals what? Mm -hmm. And that, that oracular ability to take cards and say, okay, well, I know, or even, uh, even what I love is when you get the example of like a number card. You take it and you go, okay, well, I have a seven. We know that a seven is enough, is exactly the, let's say in this case, the target number, which is where uh, success at a cost happens. So we know that it's going to be a success at a cost. It's a spade. And we know that spades mean death, let's say, in this game, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But what does success at a cost in the flavor of the spade and the flavor of not just necessarily death in the sense of literally something dies, but in the sense of the macabre or of, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And that yeah, oracular play takes its inspirational power. And first of all, it, it doesn't take it from the GM in the sense that the GM still has to decide what spades mean and what mm -hmm. target numbers are. But it gives, as you say, that inspirational power, that, that power to provoke, that provocative aspect to the players, mm -hmm. which can be really exciting. And that's one of the things that, which to me intersects with the question of what do the cards represent? And in an, in an oracular system, they represent a stimulus to the players. And mm -hmm. therefore, the players can assign those values to the environment as much as they choose to dramatize it, right? They could say, right. well, because it, there are crows everywhere. Okay, now there are literally crows in the fiction mm -hmm. circling because it was a spade. That's cool. I love yeah. that. But it's not necessarily that like the spade indicates, thus there will be carrion birds in the setting, right? In, right. That, in that scene. I found that when I use cards, it's often to take on a lot of the GM stuff hmm. in order to to have a accessible GMless right. experience because it's kind of turning over a lot of those potential decisions about like where is this going next where is this opposition going to come from what is going to be in the way of these characters just doing whatever they want um, and those kinds of things like I found I can turn those over to a card deck mm -hmm. and have that be really fruitful um, as long as the game itself is, you know, a little more improv style, build as you go kind of game. And you're actually surrendering a lot less, in my opinion, of the GM, or I should say of the designer as GM role hmm. than it looks like than you would be if it was all dice. Yeah, you put a lot of the design into how the cards work, yeah. basically. And then actually the rest of the game can seem or feel very light touch. But if the cards are coded correctly and and the way that they are treated by the players is thoughtful and considered that can be 90% of your design work that in play doesn't really feel like you're playing something that's been really super precision designed this is part of what the finite versus perceived infinity of dice interaction to me is is that cards if you don't put in a if one of the four suits let's say isn't doesn't represent comedy then you can create a game in which you are influencing the tone from afar, from the design stage, in a different way than if I tell people, look, the one on a die is never funny. That still has less impact. That has less mm -hmm. reminder. It's less of a mnemonic, although I love that as a rule, right? Look, no, no, if you roll a one, that's not your character is flop sweating during their speech. No, no, something terrible happens. Yeah. But dice have the perceived inf infinity of dice options suggests that people will go off tone often because they are feeling it. They're mm -hmm. feeling the tone and they need they just need a valve. Whereas I feel like cards often, because of their finite roster of intersections, even though it's a vast number of intersections, um, can keep atmosphere and tone mm -hmm. a little more measured 
because there's a question of, okay, but let's not forget that there's a diamond on this card. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something about the dynamic of having the piece of paper with the stuff printed on it yeah. in front of you and kind of all the cultural assumptions and kind of cultural context that we read into how playing cards are used that I think make people naturally respond to the idea of like, okay, I used diamonds for this, so it's going to mean this thing versus I use hearts for this, that's going to mean this thing. Right. In a way that pull two tokens and a green one means this and a blue one means this or roll two dice and even means this and an odd means this. Like, again, those layers of interpretation Mm -hmm. are an additional mental hurdle with other tactile randomizers while with cards, there's kind of this motion towards how do we make sure that all these things are distinct mm-hmm. because we know these four things are distinct or these two things or royals and numbers or the other attributes. If I have to jump through hoops to find out what a die is trying to tell me, that doesn't feel like play. That feels like I'm waiting to get the information that I need so I can play. Right. Whereas when I get the cards and I say, okay, so yeah, but it's a but it's a jack and it's a spade and we know that we're playing in a in the, in the mummy's tomb, mm-hmm. remixing and, and smashing the information together and doing the mashup of it feels more playful for some reason. I would force I'd have to go on for 5,000 words of a Medium article <laughs> to explain, I think, why I think that is. But that feels less like you're deferring play to get the information so you can play. Mm-hmm. It emphasizes, I think, that you're not waiting to find out what happens. You're making decisions that are themselves playful. And that's, I think, one reason why I find using cards in their oracular context to be really fulfilling because yeah. then the act of play is that interpretation. Yeah. I have a micro game called The Death of the Gilded Age that is a poster-sized playmat. I love that um, game, by the way. Thank you. And then you use a deck of cards. First, you play four cards to kind of seed, like, the circumstances. Like, are you, you know, is it Great Gatsby and you're in a big mansion out at the edge of town or, you know, whatever. And then play is very improv conversation-y and then every so often you're playing cards to twist things twist the events of the party and find out what's going to happen to this last great icon of the gilded age and so the the suits have codes fame sex money whatever the other one is (laughs) (laughs) and then different stages in the game the playmat tells you like oh you're playing a card to find out this thing right so you know how does the heart that you displayed intersect with shutting down the party whatever it is. Right. The act of play itself, part of the conversation is, oh, let's figure out what this means. Like we've established these characters and these events. Yeah. And now, you know, sex is coming into it in this twist of the game. So what does that mean? Who's who's hooking up? Who's right. rejecting someone? Like what is, how does that play out? And having that conversation is itself play. And whether it's a tarot or not, whether it's a, a poker deck or not, there's a question that when, when people play a card or see a card, there's higher on the list of, of questions is what does that mean? As opposed to you get a number on a die and you might ask, what does that mean? But I think I think we're more coded to say, what does that do? What happens? Right. As opposed to what is the meaning of a four, right? The four will tell us a thing that we will use to interpret mm-hmm. and decide meaning. As opposed to this idea that rather than inventing it, we are building it out of parts that were provided to us through the fiction and through the play and by the designer and by our fellow players in a way that feels collaborative. Despite solitaire being solitaire, there are not that many single-player card games mm-hmm. for a reason, I think, also. is because the intersection of known and unknown information and the revealing of information 
all of this points at the notion of meaning. This is one of the reasons I think why, why, for example, poker is a timeless game and is not a dice game. There's a reason why poker is poker and liar's dice is, <laughs> does not have the same cultural Im- yeah. impact of poker. There's the sense of randomization and revealing things, but there's also the notion that you play a hand in poker. You can't just raise, but that you can look at somebody and be like, okay, I, I, I discern a correlation, a relationship between their behavior and their cards in a way that's magical. Many poker players I know, a couple of them that I know who, who have played essentially professionally will tell you that with certain players, it doesn't matter what they have in their hand. They'll just play the player. If they have enough money, they'll act as if they have a great hand and then they will be able to play as if they have a great hand. But the, the idea that, well, I'm holding these pieces of paper rather than those pieces of paper will change everything about my demeanor. Right. It's kind of fascinating. <laughs> essentially, that has a profound role-playing possibility, which is this notion that you say, I'm holding aces and eights or whatever it is. And you say, boy, that makes me feel this way. Well, As that, opposed to, I might roll one of 10 digits on this die. I don't know which it's right. going to be. I mean, that kind of gets back to your comments about um, your hand potentially being your character's mood, right? Like, that's something that um, you could really lean into in a design and be like, so you're playing cards to do things or whatever, but the hand, like, use that to drive your portrayal. Use that right. to drive your characterization. If you have a bunch of low cards, uh, and low cards are bad in this in the system, right. um, or low cards are things that are not helpful for you, that tells you to play your characters a little more timid and a little more nervous or not willing to take risks right now. Right. And then once you get better cards, then we get to see your character overcome that timidity and, and you know, show off what their cool thing is. And that's oracular in itself. That notion where you're taking your character and interfacing it with the cards that you have in your hand mm-hmm. and determining what does timidity look like for this paladin? Mm-hmm. What does what does confidence look like for this assassin? Yeah. There becomes a, still an oracular element to it that I think is really powerful. I thought the biggest backlash, I thought the biggest problem in Dark mechanically was going to be my character apparently has the ability to disappear, to vanish into the shadows mm-hmm. when I have the King of Spades in my hand. And they just, what, don't remember how to do it any other time when I don't have the King of Spades in my hand? That's bull. Mm-hmm. I was prepared for that argument. I'm like, and the, I kind of don't have a counter argument. That's just the way the game works. Mm-hmm. Nobody has ever had a problem with it mm-hmm. because the nature is we understand that cards is packets of information. One of the packets of information is timing. Mm-hmm. I do or do not have this card with me right now. Right. So it's not a question of, is my character incapable of vanishing? Do they not know they can vanish? The thing is, it's like, just not, now's not the time. Right. It's the like card the, will let me know when that option is available to me. Like you can fictionally justify it in lots of different ways, right? right? Like I don't have the card, so I can't do the thing. That kind of implies, you know, I don't have the ability to do it right now because of some kind of like mystical thing. Right. I'm just not in a place that is conducive to that ability. Like this hallway just doesn't have anywhere to vanish to. So obviously I right. can't do the vanishing trick. But then when you draw the card, you're like, you know. And I start looking for then you, ways but, to justify that. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think you're right that the nature of the card play itself makes that very natural, right? And yeah. you don't get the pushback on that thing. But also that's an opportunity for players to add more texture into the game yeah. by describing what has changed or what is it about the environment or what is it about their own character that now makes this an option. Absolutely. Or gives them the ability to take advantage of the option. And why is it any more ridiculous to say my character is a great warlord or my character is a great assassin or my character, is a great, uh, character can pick locks, but I rolled a one this one time and I didn't know I was going to. Yeah. So apparently I can pick locks on my character sheet, but in actual practice, because I only get to do it twice in a campaign, let's say, mm-hmm. and I rolled a one and a two those two times. Well, then is my character really good at it or not? Like yeah. it's, it's, it's just the inverse of the same question, which mm-hmm. is, so you're saying I can't do it because the die says I'm suddenly not worth all the points I put in it? We go, no, that's just the nature of it. Mm-hmm. It's a similar argument, but for some reason I was all ready to have to defend it <laughs> because of the time shift aspect being yeah. different, which also has that whole cards is cool down. I wanted to, to underline is that we're learning from MMOs and, and apps and games that have 
cooldown systems to keep you from doing from just spamming an option, which is a perfectly reasonable thing in a game that, that is, say, not turn-based. In a computer game where it might just be easier to just hit the number three key over and over again, right. the, the cooldown mechanic says, well, wait 10 seconds. Well, in a way, if, let's say, all your jacks or all your clubs are the same power, a deck also gives you a cooldown clock, which is, I can do that as soon as I get a club back. I'm just going to do mm. stuff until I get another club, and then I can do and, this thing again. And you can do things like use the arrangement of the deck to regulate things, right? Yeah. Like games that are set up where you keep some cards out, shuffle, and then put cards in certain places in the deck. Or every time you play a club, count down five cards in your deck and put your club in there mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. Like That's another vector along which you can, you can kind of spin out a lot of dynamics out of yeah. the ability of the card deck to take these discrete parcels and move them in physical right. space. Not just have and access this information, but move it around. Right. Otherwise, it's very handy in time and in space. Mm-hmm. A lot of what we're talking about with the kind of discrete packets of information, all the different affordances of a card deck, etc. Obviously, we've been talking about like the standard American poker deck. And these affordances all apply to kind of any card deck, including like a custom deck of cards that you make for your game that has three suits that are numbered 12 to 80 in increments of five or whatever. (laughs) Right. If the information on the cards has meaning in your game, those affordances all still exist and they kind of multiply by element that you put on the card, right? Right. I mean, you can decide how many dimensions, as you say, of information there are, whether it's there are three suits, two ranks, and ten numbers, or whatever kind of weird combinations mm-hmm. you come up with. Yeah. yeah. So all that stuff, I think, still applies, but there's also you know other kinds of decks that people are, are used to or have, have seen out in the world. So maybe we should touch on those a little bit. For example, tarot decks, which have their own history and their own oracular function in non-game spaces, obviously. And there are many, many different varieties and different styles of art and different ways of interpreting what the major arcana are and minor arcana and all that stuff. In games, there's a couple games I know of that use tarot cards and they kind of hinge on that oracular meaning, using them as signifiers. When you play the hanged man in the game, that has a meaning that kind of usually resonates with what the hangman means in tarot uh, readings, that kind of thing. Mm. One really clever use of them that I like a lot is in a game by Joe Prince called Hell for Leather, where you only use the major arcana, and in addition to representing whatever they represent, they also represent individual characters in the gang. So you're like this gang that has turned on someone or, or killed someone, basically, and then they've come back to exact their revenge. So it's like the crow kind of. Right. And you find out what character you're playing each turn of the game. So, you know, if I draw the Empress, then I'm playing whoever we've established is the Empress character in the gang. Whoever's the fool is the fool for the rest of the game and everyone else draws. Um, right. To find out what character they're playing. And then as, as the uh, revenge is exacted, right, that character pool shrinks and those cards end up having a different function in the resolution. So I think that does something really cool where it kind of works on both levels of using the fortune-telling divination aspect of the cards for its own game purposes, but also giving a game reason to make a decision about which one you might want to try and get or which one you might try and uh, and access during the game. Because you might want to play this character again or you might want to not play this character again. (laughs) Right. So that's kind of a cool way of of, of using that affordance of uh, these cards represent literal individuals on them as opposed to like fortune or judgment, which are not used in this manner. There's a a great blend there of them being oracular and tactical, and the tactical is almost completely dramatic. 
Yeah, it's a high drama, yeah. high high uh, play to you know play to find out kind of game. There's also the question of how many decks you're using, mm. which I always think about. Like Castle mm. Falkenstein has an action deck and a magic deck, which again help you understand what the cards represent. But so all the wizards are drawing cards off the separate deck to do cool magical effects, and it makes magic seem otherworldly. But now imagine if one of your decks was a tarot deck and one of your deck was a poker deck. Mm. Or if you have, one of them is an American poker deck and one of them is like, uh, I have it right here. Is I, I always forget about the German suits. But like in Italian, the suits are essentially cups, coins, clubs, and swords. Mm. In German, they are hearts, bells, acorns, and leaves. Mm. There are some manner of decks that have a fifth suit, for example. You can, depending on whether or not they have, the cards have the court cards or the royals as we call them, or whether or not they have fraternities or all kinds of other ways of slicing those cards. If you can and you're thinking about it and you're not yet ready to, to try to think about listening to one of our upcoming production episodes and having your own cards printed or printed on demand. See if you can get your hands on a foreign playing card deck or uh, by foreign, it can be anything. It can just be foreign to you. To me, like a bridge deck is feels foreign just because it's a slightly set of different dimensions than a poker deck. Mm-hmm. These kind of changes were now the tactile element, whether it's anything as grandiose as the dimensions and the art of a tarot deck um, and as rich in meaning and culture as a tarot deck or anything as kind of similar cultural footprint, but just a slightly different style as bridge to poker or as getting yourself a Spanish deck or whatever it is mm. and finding meaning in some of these cards. The real question, of course, becomes now when you use something like a, a regular bicycle deck that you can get at Target or a gas station or something, you're making the game accessible. Right. And when you make something that's that's either harder to get or requires, for example, something that, that the players want a really aesthetically synced up deck and can't find one so they don't play your game or a tarot deck. I have good friends who won't mess with it. Right. They're not going to play a game with a tarot deck because yeah, that's it's, risky. Yeah, that's that might be bad. <laughs> and so these are the uh, the options that you're kind of tampering with, if you will, are also the question of, of accessibility. And sometimes that's just the nature in the same way that some people can't get D12s. Yeah. It's, it's another trade-off like everything else. Your standard poker deck is going to be most accessible to people in the U.S., for sure. And then as you diverge from that, what are you gaining from using other things? If it's worth it, great. Yeah. If it's not worth it, maybe there's a way to use all of the multitude of affordances of the cards to achieve your design goals for the game. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving stars or a review at your favorite podcast dispensary. If you have questions or comments for us about the Design Games Podcast, come check out our Google Plus community. You can just search for Design Games Podcast on Google Plus. There's also a link at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...